Good morning, Grace. Today's passage comes from John 7, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to know openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he then also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some people said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Thanks. Good morning again, everyone. It's been a joy to make our way through John. <clears throat> the pace is going to pick up pretty pretty quickly, not necessarily in the sermons, but in the action in John. Um, we're, we're quickly coming to the, the Passion Week, beginning in chapter 12, and, and you can start to f- feel the tension uh, building and, and building in the ministry of Jesus and here even with his brothers. But our passage for this morning picks up about six months after the end of chapter six. And so you can't really see it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles open, you, they're, they're right there next to each other, and there's six months in between. And we know this because chapter 6 ended with Jesus at the Passover feast, while chapter 7 begins with the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, and they were six months apart. The other three Gospels tell us a good deal about what happened in those six, six months, uh, primarily Jesus ministering to the Twelve uh, up north in Galilee. But John, for his own God-inspired purposes, just skipped over all of that and fast-forwarded six months for us. Well, in this scene, we find Jesus interacting with his brothers concerning the kind of participation that he, Jesus, would have uh, in the Feast of Booths. And each according to their frame of their own frame of reference. Jesus' brothers according to their frame of reference, and Jesus according to his. What do I, what do I mean by that? According to the will of their f- their flesh, their own desires, Jesus' brothers wanted him to go all in right then and present himself and fully function as the Messiah, it seems. But according to the will of the Father, Jesus determined to go in a more subtle way in private because, as we'll see, his time had not yet come. Their interaction helps us to see some important points about the mysterious providence, rule, reign of God, the the mysterious way in which God rules, the nature of unbelief. What does it look like? Where does it come from? How does it function? It helps us to see what godly interaction with unbelievers can look like and also the perfect obedience of Jesus. The main thrust of our passage and all of that combined the thrust of the sermon is that our God reigns. It can be easy to forget that and easy to function as if that were not true in a world that 
decreasingly acknowledges that. But Grace, let us let us not forget, no matter what our eyes show us or what the news tell us, our God reigns. Whether we realize it or like it or acknowledge it, there is no corner of creation and no moment in time in which God is not perfectly ruling over all. And that leads to two different things. To the faithful, it leads to obedience. And to those who don't, those who are not faithful, those who do not believe, it leads to growing hostility. Therefore, the main takeaways for us are to trust wholly in God, entirely in God, and boldly live in light of that every minute of every day, regardless of how the ungodly around us respond to that obedience. We see an example of exactly that in Jesus and an example of exactly not that in his brothers and in the crowds. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient and clear and powerful that it is able to transform the hardest, coldest, deadest heart. It is able to overcome the most severe pride and stubbornness. We pray that your word would do just that right now, that your word would overcome whatever is in us that we're holding back from you. You reign, and our choice is to acknowledge that and live in light of that or or face continual frustration and difficulty and ultimately everlasting death. The choice is, is just so simple, and I pray that through this text you would help us to see that in increasing measure this morning. Your words and your words alone are eternal life. Many are the ways and plans of man, but in the end they lead to death. May that become freshly apparent, or perhaps for the first time apparent to some this morning. I pray again in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage opens with John describing a strategic decision, a strategic move by Jesus. The works and the teachings that he had done in the south, in and around Jerusalem, had made it so that things were too volatile for him there to continue ministering there without being murdered. Uh, That is, the Jewish leaders were so upset with Jesus that if he returned, as verse 1 tells us, he would likely be killed. Look at at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, that is in the north, not in the south, down by Jerusalem. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews there were seeking to kill him. And so I know most of you enough to know you're, you're a fairly clever bunch. And so hopefully you're thinking, you're thinking, right? What's your question? You got it already? Why was Jesus so reluctant for that? Hadn't he come to do just that? But why, why is it that he was avoiding in this passage the death that he had come to die? We've briefly considered this before, but since it comes up here again and will come up again and again throughout John's Gospel, I want to draw your attention to a few more aspects to that. So through a strange encounter with his brothers, his earthly half-brothers, remember he had the Holy Spirit as, as his father and Mary as his mother and his brothers had Joseph and Mary as their parents, but through a strange encounter with his brothers, which we'll come back to in just a few minutes, it becomes clear quickly 
that it is not a question of if Jesus will willingly give his life, but when. The issue isn't that he's just too nervous right now or that he's wavering on whether or not that he will, but it's a question of timing. Again, after being challenged by his brothers to head to Jerusalem, in spite of this opposition, Jesus explained why he wouldn't two different times in our passage, in verse 6 and then again in verse 8. In verse 6 we read his reason, why why I will not go with, with you. He said to them, because, you see it, my time has not yet come. And again in verse 8, I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. It's important for us to see if you're just joining us, or maybe you forgot because chapter 2 was a while ago, when I preached through it, but it's important for us to see once again, this is an echo of something he'd said back then. Remember when the wine ran out at the wedding in Cana and his mom came to him and said to him, they have no wine. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? Chapter two, verse four, Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with me? And and what was his reasoning then? My hour has not yet come. What's more, get this grace, you got to feel this in order for the explanation to land the way that it ought. You, you need to know what's coming as well. Several more times in this gospel, we'll, we'll hear Jesus say this all the way up until chapter 12. For instance, after another scuffle with the Jewish leaders in chapter 7, they tried to arrest him. Listen to the difference in language. I'm going to point this out, but see if you can pick up the difference in language. It's similar and different. Um, In chapter 7, the Jews tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Likewise, in chapter 8, after claiming the Father as his witness and rebuking the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders again tried to silence Jesus, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus' answer, because my hour had not yet come, to his brother's question, or to our our question about his brothers, why would he why would he not wait? Why why was he worried about being killed? The answer to the question is clear, but it only leads to more questions, right? What was his time? What did he mean by that? I can't go with you because my time has not yet come, but time for what? And when when actually was that time? Again, skipping ahead just a little bit to frame this all up for us. There's two passages later in John's gospel that really shed a lot of light on this or shine a lot of light on this. In John chapter 12, which takes place at the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life, Jesus says, now it's here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? Well, chapter 13, just a few verses later, Jesus provides more of an explanation. Now before the feast of Passover, so six months from our passage here, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, so where's all this going? Combined, these verses help us to see that Jesus' time had not yet come at at this point in his ministry and in John's gospel in chapter 7. His time had not yet come and wouldn't through chapter 7 and into 8 and all the way up to chapter 12. It had not yet come for what? For him to glorify, to be glorified by, get this grace, by expressing the full measure of his love. That's part of this. The full measure of his love in his life and then finally in his death. 
There was a kind and an amount of love assigned by God to Jesus to give to the world that Jesus had not yet fully spilled. While he was on earth, by being an example to the world and revealing the will of God, and then another kind of love and another amount of love that he would give in his death and his suffering the wrath of the Father for the sins of the world. Again, evidently by the time of our passage for this morning, he had more to give, more love to give on earth before giving his life in love. So, but his time was coming soon, just six months from now. By his third year of ministry, by the end of John 12, the time would come where Jesus would make his way to the cross by handing himself over in the exact way that his brothers were encouraging him to now to the same murderous intent of the same Jewish leaders. I said I'd come back to this. Here it is. It is both interesting and important for us to note in this passage something key in, in, under the banner of Our God Reigns. Notice that Jesus, the fact that Jesus' time had not yet come meant two things. It influenced both what Jesus himself did and secondly, what others were able to do to him. Don't miss Don't miss either of those. That's why I tried to get you to notice the change in language. Knowing that his time had not yet come, Jesus chose not to go down to Jerusalem. But at the same time, because his time had not yet come, the Jewish leaders were somehow unable to arrest him. Did you notice that? It says because his time had not yet come, nobody could do what they intended. Jesus' choice not to go down to Jerusalem seems conscious and deliberate. He knew that, and he knew what the Father was doing and what the Father was planning and the timing of the Father, and so consciously and deliberately he chose not to go. He knew what would happen if he went down there, and in obedience to the Father chose to stay back, in a certain sense anyway. And on the other hand, it seems that the Spirit of God somehow prevented the Jewish leaders from doing what they otherwise would have been able to do, but without their even knowing or understanding that that was happening. And so it is for all of us for much of life. But the main point for us to grasp here is that the mysterious providence of God governs all. Sometimes in ways we see and understand and often in time in ways we are entirely unaware of. But in both cases, God perfectly governs all of his creation for his greatest glory and the greatest good of all whose hope is in him. There is grace such sweet and such sweetness such rest, such hope, and such joy for all who will receive that in faith. Our lives are about living not in light of what we see or the sense in our own wisdom that we're able to make of it, but our lives honor God in so far as we live every minute of every day, no matter what's going on around us, in light of the promises of God, which are for victory and glory beyond anything we can imagine to all whose hope is in Christ. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And so for all of those reasons, Jesus' ministry for the next six month and months until his death would be confined to the north. Until it wasn't. And that leads to the next section. Um, I think it's, in some ways, the most shocking passage, certainly or shocking few verses in this passage. And in some ways, in the Bible, I, like, Try to get your head around this, Grace. Jesus' Jesus' own brothers, two of whom wrote eventually 
books in the New Testament, letters in the New Testament. Jesus' own brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Jude, his own brothers, the men he'd grown up with, who'd undoubtedly heard the stories of his miraculous birth and the prophecies of his mission, who'd watched him live a truly sinless childhood throughout the time, like a lot of you have toddlers and young humans in your home. And I mean, can you imagine a, sin, a sinless toddler? I, I, I can't. Had five chances to witness them and Sorry, guys. (laughs) They watched him live a sinless childhood, speaking nothing but truth and doing nothing but good. They'd witnessed Jesus' perfection probably closer than anyone else in the history of the world ever would, but they did not believe in him. That I don't know. That you don't look as shocked as I feel, but you, you probably should. We've talked about how counterintuitive and surprising it is. Just, again, think of this. This is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form, the one in whom we live and move and have our being, the exact image and representation of the glory of God. Remember how over and over we've seen in John's Gospel that he's standing in front of people, and they don't even know what they're looking at. They They're angry at him for these claims of who he truly was rather than falling down to worship him. Like that, that's just shocking. But in my estimation, it's on a whole nother level of craziness that his own brothers fell into that camp as well. Let me give you a quick background and then come back to that. Look look at verse two. It says, now the feast the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. And, and so the, the backdrop of what the brothers were encouraging him to do in their unbelief was the Feast of the Booths or Tabernacles. You, you can read about it in Leviticus 23. It was one of the three feasts that God required all Jews to attend annually. And it was essentially a, a week-long camping trip. It really was. It was a festive, fun, group camping trip. And, and so maybe we need to do more of that at Grace Church. But it was it was uh, uh, seven days, and then there was some other stuff on the eighth. But everyone was required to set up some kind of tent or or temporary structure, a booth or a tabernacle, and live in it for just over a week. And it was to remind them to to build into their collective consciousness the greatness and goodness of God and His deliverance and who they were as a people and what it was really that united them beyond just their genetic pool. But it was to remind them of the time that they wandered around in the wilderness and only had tents to dwell in after God had miraculously freed them in the Exodus. Again, it was to maintain and develop and and teach each new generation and give them a corporate sense of their identity as well as the power and blessing of God. And so for that reason, it was a reasonable expectation for Jesus' brothers to expect that Jesus would go. It was commanded by God and part of who they were as a people. And so look at verse 3. His brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And it's, it's not exactly clear what's going on here. I read a bunch on this, and it's anything from sort of his brothers kind of mocking him to being misguided. 
At the very least, as the next verse makes clear, verse 5, Jesus' brothers didn't understand what they were dealing with here. Perhaps they were like many of the others who followed Jesus in the hope that he would deliver them from the Roman persecution and oppression that they were under as the political or military Messiah they'd been longing for. If so, them urging Jesus to go to Jerusalem, go public, and go big would make a lot of sense. Understandably, the Jewish people were tired. They were tired of being under the thumb of Rome and the idea of God's promised deliverer, even if the brother didn't quite seem like that to them, but the idea of it even being possible that God's promised deliverer was in their presence was really appealing to them. But John states plainly, however, again, look at verse 5, that the heart of their appeal, the heart of their proposition, whatever they meant by it exactly, was unbelief. For not even his brothers believed in him. Remember, this, this came right after many being dismissed from Jesus' presence or, or leaving because what Jesus was saying was too much for them. His, many of his disciples had just walked away, and here again we come and see his own brothers not believing. What is going on? The request of Jesus' brothers was rooted in a fundament, fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what he was there to do. And that is the, that is the functional equivalent, Grace. Get this. That is the functional equivalent of unbelief. As we've talked about many, many times, because John talks about this many, many times, or rather records Jesus talking about this many, many times in his gospel, belief, grace, listen, kids, listen, even blood, earnest, zeal to the highest belief in something other than Jesus, as he has revealed himself in the Bible, is not belief. We are not free to create a man according to our own likings and sensibilities, Believe in him, call it Jesus, and think of that as the kind of belief that God requires, the kind of belief that God uses to unite us to the work of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. That kind of belief, the kind of belief in a Jesus we made, we invented, has no spiritual benefit at all. In fact, it only deceives us into thinking we have spiritual benefit when we have none. The real Jesus was, as we've consistently seen in John's gospel, too much or too little for many to accept. And likewise, many believed in Jesus when he fit with their plans, with what he said and taught and did fit with their plans. When it seemed like he was presenting himself as the kind of ruler that they wanted, they would follow Jesus. But as Jesus increasingly revealed himself for who he really was and what he was really there for, They left, thus proving that their belief was never sincere or genuine. Their belief was merely in an idea that they had concocted and come up with and called Jesus. It's like taking that post right there and sticking a, hello, my name is Jesus on it, and believing in that and calling it Jesus. It's the same thing. When we make up Jesus in our own heads, it's not really Jesus. In the same way, the real Jesus, in the same way that he was here for his brothers, in the same way the real Jesus is there for us to accept grace or reject, but not to modify or redefine. We cannot long for, this is, this is what I grew up with, believing in, some cosmic combination of butler and grandpa. Take, take, 
take the one who just sort of does your bidding in a way that is kind and gentle and, and been through a bunch and has a, an extra kind of wisdom but never gets too angry about stuff. That was my grandpa at least. This, this combination, this cosmic combination of butler and grandpa, you can't do that. Call it Jesus. Trust in that and believe there are blessings for you. You cannot take away the supernatural nature of Jesus and still call that invention of ours Jesus and gain the rewards held out for those who have faith. We cannot strip Jesus of his inconvenient teachings, as so many did, and commands and believe we're believing in Jesus. That's what Jesus' brothers were trying to do, along with many of what the Bible called his disciples and the crowds. And therefore, verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. This is scathing. This is a scathing rebuke of his his own brothers. My time has not yet come, but your time. Your time is always here. The world can't hate you. I'm not going down there because they hate me and they want to kill me, and my time for that is not yet. But the world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus told them, as we looked at a few minutes ago, that his time was not yet. But again, in a scathing rebuke, Jesus said it was their time. What did he mean by that? His main point was that as long as they loved the world, they had nothing to fear from the world. You and I are experiencing this in a way that many in the history of our country haven't today. But the world is happy to accept atheists, those who don't believe in God at all, and syncretists, those who are glad to mix a a bunch of the world with a bunch of, or some at least, of the things that God has said. For neither atheists nor syncretists demand anything from the world, and both are glad to accept the world on its terms. This has always been the case, and it will always be the case to varying degrees until Christ returns. If you are willing to play grace by the rules set up by those who do not love God, you'll be accepted and even anointed. That's what Jesus was telling his brothers. And if you'll at least, at least mix in enough of their way of thinking into yours, the world, he said, cannot hate you. But if you will commit all your ways, which is what Jesus required of all of his followers, but if you will commit all your ways to God, if you'll follow Jesus wherever he leads, then you'll need at times to speak of the evils of the world as they're put before you. And the world will hate you for it, even as Jesus, they hated Jesus for it. In simplest terms, let me boil all this down practically. In an increasing measure, thinking, feeling, believing, and acting in truly and distinctly Christian ways is falling out of favor in our culture. We increasingly look, or at least the culture we're in, increasingly looks more like Rome. This does not mean that we go looking for fights. It does not mean that we are to be angry, fearful people. It does not mean that we're to completely separate ourselves from the world, and it does not mean that we're called to something other than love for the world. In each of these things, consider the way of our Lord Jesus and how he interacted with the world. It does mean, however, that we must, in our hearts, regard Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you, yet... You're to do it in gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, as Jesus repeatedly was, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And that will mean, and that will mean, Grace, 
Remember this. You're going to face it this week in some capacity, maybe today. And that will mean in hopeful, worshipful, loving, clear, winsome, and bold ways we must help the world to see the world as it truly is. That is, we must teach the the whole world, beginning in our homes and with ourselves and our kids and our church, to obey all that Jesus commanded and to help the world understand what the world looks like through God's eyes. We must help everyone we meet understand that God made the world and all that is in it, that he ordered it, all of it, according to his purposes. Grace, he alone, this is what Jesus is telling his brothers that they don't yet get. He alone is life, and so he alone gives life. Our God is such that all things belong to him. Things must be as God made them to be. Things are what God has called them. God alone is creator, king, namer, and judge. Those belong to him and to him alone. For all these reasons, life is not ours to define, to give, or to take. We need to have a high value because the word gives it to us of being fruitful and multiplying and caring for the vulnerable. And on the other end of the spectrum, we need to oppose everything that claims or demeans that which belongs to God and has been named by God. We need to oppose all forms of abortion and favoritism and exploitation and euthanasia. And for these reasons, mankind is not ours to define. We need to have a high view of mankind as divine image bearers. All people are made in the image of God, and therefore all people have dignity and all the responsibility that it affords. We need to have a high view of male and female and the common and unique roles that God has assigned to each of us as such. We need to have a high view of promoting the purpose for which we are made. And on the other end, we need to oppose the exploitation of anyone and everyone, abuse, all forms of Sexual immorality, fornication and adultery and pornography and homosexuality, egalitarianism and transgenderism and everything and anything that would keep us from being able to work for the good of the world, to live quiet and godly lives for the physical and spiritual good of those around us. The disbelief of Jesus' brothers helps us to see two main things. Things we've already seen and will continue to see as we make our way through John's gospel. First, the fact that Jesus' brothers did not believe, even though they walked and lived and were with Jesus their whole lives, that sin is so thoroughly spiritually blinding that even when the Son of God is as close as he can possibly be, for as long as he can possibly be, no one was with Jesus longer than his brothers. In our sin, we cannot see him in the least. Spiritual blindness is like that. And we are all, even the very brothers of Jesus, born into that condition. Spiritual sight and genuine belief that comes from it are gifts from God. Gifts that God would give to Jesus' brothers after the resurrection. And the second main and familiar point is that we cannot be friends with both both Jesus and the world that opposes him. It should not be our goal to be disliked by anyone. But if we are liked by everyone, chances are good that we are not following Jesus very closely. And that leads to the next point, the perfect obedience of Jesus. If you were really paying attention earlier, you might be wondering about Jesus skipping this feast. If God required it and commanded that all of his people take part in it, how is it possible that Jesus would just choose not to go? 
as it seems to suggest when he was pressed by his brothers. In verse 10, John briefly clears that up. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast then, he, that is Jesus, also went up. But, but not publicly, but in private. Even though it sort of sounds in verse 8 like Jesus was, um, was telling his brothers that he was not in fact going to go, verse 10 tells us that what he was actually saying to them but he was not going to go with them and in the manner that they had proposed. That is, when Jesus dismissed his brothers and told them, I'm not going to the feast for my time had not yet come, he meant that he would not go and present himself as the Messiah like they wanted. He went then in continued perfect obedience to the Father. But he went privately so as to avoid the crowds and their expectations, as well as the Jewish leaders and their evil intentions for just a, just a short time still. And that, too, in obedience to God. Grace, once again, in Jesus, we have a perfect picture of obedience through every season of blessing and trial, even unto willingly enduring the forsaking of the Father and death on the cross on behalf of the sins of the world. Let's look to him. Let's look to him in the ways we interact with each other and to the world around us. Well, in the final few verses of our passage, we find another familiar scene. It's a confused and divided crowd. They just don't know what to do with this guy. What do we do with him? And so in verse 11, we, the Jews were looking for him, of course. He'd done all kinds of things and taught all kinds of stuff. And the Jewish leaders to put him to death and the crowds to see what else he would do. And so they asked, where is he? They, they knew he needed to be there because the Father had commanded and there was much muttering, muttering, don't mutter. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, they merely muttered. They didn't talk openly of him. Just like today in Jesus' time, it was really hard for most people to know what to do with him. The stories about him were anything but normal. His teaching was different than anything they'd heard before. That he was being talked about throughout all Israel meant you couldn't just dismiss him. You had to have a take on it. His claims and demands, however, meant that you couldn't just go along comfortably. His claims and his demands were such that you couldn't just ride his coattails. He required things of those, required things of those who would follow him. So what were the crowds and leaders to do with them? Well, they're... By my count, there's five things. Many were looking for him, trying to figure out where he was. Everyone was talking, muttering privately about him. Some believed him to be a good man, which of course he was, but far more than that. Others said he was a, a false teacher, a deceiver of the people. And But no one knew exactly what to do with him as they fearfully waited on the Jewish leaders to make a formal decision about him. What that means is they didn't want to get in trouble for being on the wrong side. The Jews hadn't formally issued a declaration, even though they were increasingly angry with him. And so if they sided with him, the crowds didn't want to be on the wrong side of that. And if they sided against him, they were looking out for their own necks. And so it is today, Grace. What do you do with Jesus? Who do you say that he is? What authority does he have, not just theoretically, but functionally, practically in your life? Are you seeking him and why? What for? To what end? How tied are the world's opinions of you and of Jesus 
to your actions and beliefs? Do you believe in him only when it is convenient or or do you believe in him wherever he leads and whatever it costs? Your answers to those questions mean everything. So here's my conclusion. And all of this, see in this passage, and hear me say plainly, our God reigns. Our God reigns. The Father had perfectly planned the coming, the ministry, the suffering, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and the timing of all of those things. 30 years into his life and nearly three years into his ministry, Jesus' own brothers joined the Jews and not yet understanding or believing this. Nevertheless, Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, without exception, even as the Father perfectly governed his perfect plan to save us from our sins. And so may our hope be fully in Jesus, for his time has come and is coming again. May we patiently, patiently say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And in the meantime, may we eagerly seek to live in faithful and loving obedience to all that Jesus has commanded, proclaiming this good news to the entire world.